Welcome to the Queen Silk Podcast. This is episode 13, Fascism and Fashion. Our woman of the week is Gabrielle Coco Chanel, who lived from 1883 to 1971. We are sourcing her story as researched and told by Rhonda K. Gerlich in her biography, Mademoiselle Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History. Today's music was composed by Lily Boulanger and is called D'un matin de printemps. Welcome to the Queen Silk Podcast. I'm Anne. This is Tammy. This is Courtney. And today our woman of the week is Coco Chanel. Woohoo! I'm very excited. You've probably heard of Coco Chanel, but and know her brand and know kind of who she is and all that. But do you actually know the woman behind the clothes, which I think is an also fascinating concept. So mm-hmm. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about her and her history, and we're going to dive into um, a little bit of the the times that she was living in and some of the things she was able to do with uh, fashion and fashion history. So we're going to talk about a lot today. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about her growing up life. Tammy, you have listened to the book more recently than me. <laughs> Do you want to yes. go ahead and share, like, mm-hmm. clips? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so she grew up in a fairly large family. She was the second oldest. I think there were six kids total. I think there were six. Um, but she was born into a family of salesmen. So typically in her history, the Chanel history, the fathers would be peddlers. They would go all around everywhere and come back just long enough to get their wives pregnant again and then leave. So it just was this interesting family dynamic already, a little bit of abandonment, a little bit of like not understanding what a family actually is. Um, But her mom was like, I'm not going to take that. So she gathered all the kids and followed him around. Now, keep in mind, she's also a young mom. (laughs) So she gets sick really quickly and ends up dying after she has her six kids because it's just one after the other, like six or nine months, 18 months later, not even two years between each of her kiddos. So she's really, really not doing well. Um, she does have two years of like happy bliss where she lives with her uncle and actually does get to attend school. Mm-hmm. Not very long though, because her dad, after the mom dies, the dad takes them and puts them straight into a convent. And he's like, have fun, uh, get your education, bye. And she never sees her dad again. Um, so that's just kind of that. Then the whole convent is just not a happy history. Um, obviously you're growing up, you're poor, you're technically now an orphan because the dad never shows up. We don't know what happened to him. Um, so just not a good experience. Eventually she does, there's a cousin who's her same age that she ends up going to school after this convent. Once, once you graduate, I guess, from this convent age, you have two choices. You can either become a nun and Mm -hmm. follow through their path. (laughs) 100% their path or you can say I'm gonna do it on my own and see what life actually is like I would like to get married I'd like to have a life and she chose to take this other path where and so she ended up going to school with her cousin can't remember her name it might be Annette I got Annalise I don't know her cousin (laughs) does not feature later in the story no (laughs) so she ends up going to school with her cousin and spends some summers with her cousin's family and this is where she first gets her experience in design because she starts to help her aunt design hats and to make all of the hats and everything so it's just kind of like her growing up very sad experience and in this school with her cousin there's two people, two different types of people, the ones who are poor and then the ones who are not, the ones who are having their way paved for them and the ones who have no money to pay for it, right? Yeah. And so they're treated differently that way, but they're also dressed differently. And the people who have to, they're orphans, they don't have money, they have to do all of the chores for everybody else. Kind of like a little princess type situation. Yeah. You have to earn your room and board in order to go to this school. And she uses that later on, that uniform for the poorer class of people in her designs, which I think mm-hmm. is just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just kind of her growing up experience. Very cool. Anything else? I mean, <laughs> okay, so she starts off making hats later after she leaves the school. It's been a little while for me, but um, but I can give you, like, the spark notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she leaves the school. She ends up 
on in a resort town, basically. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the resort town at all. But she does end up um, working as a prostitute, pretty much. <laughs> but not, it's more like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, there's this weird politics slash economics kind of situation going on where the man that she is currently sleeping with, who's not technically her boyfriend because they're not in a romantic relationship. Oh, you mean she's in a today modern relationship where you're just sleeping together for benefits? Right. Pretty much. I mean, that's what we are at today, right? Yeah. 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 Um, but he's also like, so she makes these little hats kind of on the side, mm-hmm. and he he's willing to fund her hat um, stuff. Materials but, and... Because mm-hmm. yeah, they're small. Yeah, busy while I'm not requiring you. That's literally yeah. why he did it. He's like, you yeah. have nothing to do, so... Why don't you go design some hats? And she's like, yes. Yes. (laughs) And so she gets started by selling hats on the beach to these very wealthy women in this resort town. And her hats are so fabulous. Everyone wants one. And then they also start looking at what Coco is actually wearing herself. And they're like, well, where did you get your clothes? Like, you make these beautiful hats. Where did you get your clothes? And she's like, um. I just stole them from my boyfriend's wardrobe. I don't even know, if, like, boyfriend. I don't know. I, I, we'll call him boyfriend. But yeah. We'll call no, him boyfriend, but no just know that it's not. Emotional attachment whatsoever. Yeah. This was yeah. a benefit. It is kind a of, business transaction. Yeah. Yeah. Her, like, in. coquette is, I think, like, what they called it. Because she was, like, a specific type of dancer that they also, like, quote unquote, hired out to be their. Oh, gotcha. Their Coco. That's where Coco actually comes from initially. But, okay, okay. Yeah. So she's huh. his Good to know. in yeah. that regard. Like, So he'll fund her room, board, everything, because she just occasionally sleeps yeah. with him. It's interesting. It's quite the situation. Yeah. Hey guys, this happens <laughs> in modern-day society a lot. So just saying. Yeah. Um, we won't be too judgmental about her early life. No. no. She worked hard to get where she was. Yeah. She worked really hard. Um, but so she starts by selling hats, and then later... Um, Slowly, like, people start noticing what she's wearing, and she tries to go to her boyfriend and mm-hmm. is like, hey, they want to wear the clothes I'm wearing. And he's like, absolutely not. And she's like, but I could make lots of money. I've already got lots of pre-orders. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. I'm Like, the hats were one thing, and that's small, and it's simple, and, like, you can put flowers on them. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. But, no. Clothes is out of the, out of the question. But fortunately, she happens to know a guy named Boy Chappelle, who is like, and she's like, I don't know how they meet. I can't remember they that meet part. at her boyfriend's place. At he boyfriend's comes place. to that resort for a little bit. But the difference between the people at the resort See connections. are very, very upper class lazy. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they just party all day. And Boy yeah. Chappelle was invited to one of these experiences. And he's like, I mean, you guys are fun, but I am a second generation um, rich person, and I don't want to live off the wealth of my father, so I'm going to make yeah. my own wealth. And that's where they meet, and they end up getting together, essentially. But yeah. he really sees her business skills, and mm-hmm. he's like, I can help you get yeah. where you want to be, and I want to help you get where you want to be. And she's like, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. It's then we're entering, you know, more partnership kind of benefits. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yes. So That's he funds her, and he even helps her, like, so they start by, with just the textiles, and they start making clothes. Everybody starts coming. He opens up a little shop for her um, initially in this little place, and then I know that he also does the one in Paris, and then there's another mm-hmm. one that he opens in France. But it's a very exclusive French-only market Mm -hmm. at this point. And it's very much only uh, upper-class French that Mm -hmm. are wearing these clothes. But the thing is, like Tammy said, she uses um, the same design as, like, her little poverty outfit that she wore at the school. Mm -hmm. And so she's taken something that is her and is giving it and a symbol of her poverty and giving it to these upper classes, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. And then later, so she does become pretty huge. We're skipping a lot. <laughs> a lot. But she becomes pretty big. She starts designing for ballets um, and doing, like, stage productions. But then what she starts doing is the stage jewelry that they use. Mm-hmm. She takes it off, 
and she uses it as jewelry that anybody can buy because not everybody can afford a string of pearls, but anybody can afford a string of plastic looking pearls. <laughs> and anybody no, this can is afford where, you, know, you get people like my mom. She be, yeah. I mean, I grew up with like so much jewel like fake jewelry. Mm-hmm. Like it was all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I think that's like really where my mom and my sister and I like we always dressed like mm-hmm. with our jewelry. That's how we upgraded ourselves. Yeah. Like, and with our image. Oh yeah. Was the jewelry, but it was approachable. It was design. Mm-hmm. It was nice things, but we and we knew they were knockoffs. Mm-hmm. But it still represented and gave us the perception mm-hmm. of these nice things and nice designs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and like, I love it. <laughs> and consider like the the vintage look from the fifties. What are, what do you have? You've got a cute cardigan. You've got a matching typically um, shirt underneath. It could either be knit or a button down. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's got their string of pearls. It does not matter what class you come from everybody has that string of pearls. It's like a uniform almost. Mm-hmm. Like, if you don't have it, you don't look like you're fully made up in a lot of ways. I didn't live during the 50s. That's just what I see, and maybe I'm <laughs> wrong, but I remember yeah. it was no, a big still, deal. Even like, today, the, the perception of a, the classic woman mm-hmm. is very much Coco Chanel's uh, um, design oh, yeah. ideals. Yes. It's something yep. structured, simple, about mm-hmm. textiles, mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of luxury, or at least the perception of it, and mm-hmm. that then and a string of pearls, whether real or fake. Yep. yep. So it is still going strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Coco Chanel, she she uses this. She makes it accessible, fashion accessible for higher and lower classes, and she brings a lot of women together under this idea of Chanelism, mm-hmm. and. Um, and like this is what she's been developing during the 1920s, during uh, the 1930s. And then it gets so strong that by the time the 1940s roll around and the French occupation, um, Chanelism, like, it's, it's a pretty big deal. We're going to talk a little bit more about the 1940s in a minute. Um, well, in like 20 minutes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to throw this out there. Yes, she, she is um, big enough that... Even the German wives of Nazi officers are like, no, you're going to Paris, you are bringing home Chanel, mm-hmm. and I'm going to wear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, they, they would do it for their wives, even though it was not necessarily, like, they did not like Chanel in Germany because they, it was not the image or the ideal for the proper German Nazi woman. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, instead of this outward appearance or even fashion at all, they just wanted uh-huh. the woman to, like, focus on the home and just be a mother yeah. and a uh, subservient wife to a certain extent. Exactly. Um, so the fact that the... And, like, we'll talk more about it, but these women, it's really funny because, I mean, maybe ironic is a better word. Very but ironic. like... It, even these German ideals could never fully penetrate the female mm-hmm. gender. No. Because women are, they were just too strong. They mm-hmm. had ideals about what they should look like and and how they wanted to act. And so they were yeah. still somewhat, that independent spirit just always came through. Yeah. yeah. So I just love, like, the <laughs> the stories, you know, that we've been told about, yeah. Um, yeah. like, the women. Like, I just love this. Like, the women are like, yeah, I'll be your stay-at-home wife. Uh, but when you go, you better bring me back some Chanel. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, because even though you don't care what I look like, I care what I look like. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't question because... There is still something in that partnership as a, as a husband and wife that, like, mm-hmm. he still respects, yeah. you know, what she wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yep. She's doing her yep. part. So I can't imagine, you know, people, they were bringing it home is all I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I love that you said that that independence comes through because even as Coco is going through her entire experience, she starts out obviously dead poor. She is waiting mm-hmm. for everybody else to help her through. Obviously makes yeah. some money starts making more money when Boy Chappelle helps her open various areas. Um, but she also was a huge spender at the beginning. She's like, mm-hmm. I've got money. I can buy what I want, right? Yeah. What she didn't know is Boy was footing the bill for these things. Oh, like yes. she was, He was helping her get through all of her extreme intensive purchases, yeah. right? And she didn't even know until he one day was like, okay, you got to curb your spending. Like, this is, this is a lot. And yeah. she's like, I thought I was paying for it with my money. And he's like, mm, you don't make that much yet, babe. Yeah. And she was like, oh, what? And then immediately did everything she could to pay off the debt that she owed Boy that he mm-hmm. wasn't actually 
trying to get her to pay back. He just was yeah. telling her to calm down. <laughs> yeah. But she pays everything back and then works even harder to make sure that she can maintain her style of living on her own funds. And so yeah. I think that independence really shows through in her fashion and the I way that, that people treat Coco mm-hmm. Chanel's fashion because yeah. now they know this is independence. This is what it means yeah, yeah, to yeah. be a woman on your own, not supported by a man. Don't get yeah. me wrong. I think we should be. But... I mean, I think we should be to some and it extent. It should be partners. It I really love the way that um, Coco Chanel and Boy Chappelle are actually partners yes. in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, she's bringing something to the table, he's bringing something to the table. And whether that is, like, financial resources, partner, like, emotional, um, emotional support, whatever it is. Creative support, mm-hmm. having yeah. children, whatnot. Yes. Like, you're still bringing something to the table. I love, yeah. I think that is where, where we see the best most successful relations like mm-hmm. personal relationships oh, is yes. when every contribution is at least acknowledged mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it's not oh, like absolutely. well you don't do this and you don't do that it's like yeah. no no I do this and we do this and and then yeah. if there is a conflict what can mm-hmm. you bring to me yeah what I love that you just said too it's like really reminded me of just how because uh, I used to work in Miami and so I, I worked with a lot of like young professionals in the design industry and they just were just already thinking about like how do I build real wealth mm-hmm. and so I remember just like sitting at <laughs> in our in our showroom one day and like having this huge long conversation with one of my coworkers, and he was just like yeah he's like what when you're trying to build real financial wealth what you what you follow your fault what your pitfall is is when you make a little bit of money and then you immediately upgrade all of your current circumstances so yeah. like all your fashion you know you go buy a new car you buy you upgrade your apartment etc etc and you are always upgrading yeah. whereas if you'll just live simple if you don't upgrade all of those things then your wealth has a moment to build and yeah. it's not like you can't enjoy what you're mm-hmm. making but if you don't rise your standard of living every single time you make money then you it is able to compound yeah <laughs> so it's like that idea of yeah. like what like independence within relationships, within like the integrity of your person as a creative person, but also financially. I think it all really has kind of the same principles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like hold on to what you're getting mm-hmm. and for the right moment. Yes. Yes. Oh, yep. yes. So, um, Coco, we kind of, I kind of glossed over this. So, we're going to come back to the war in a minute. Um, but so during the 1920s to the 1930s, as she's really getting her rise, we said that everybody's wearing her clothes, rich and poor alike. And she is building up her own wealth. Um, But this kind of puts her in an interesting, odd place because she has the wealth, but she's kind of like a new money and she comes from poverty and she doesn't have all of the same mannerisms and social graces that everyone else has. And she's actually really kind of looked down on. She may be the queen of Paris and the queen of Parisian fashion, but when she goes and is visiting with different people, it's like they are not fond of her being there. They're mm-hmm. kind of snobby in a lot of ways. They about her clothes. They don't want her presence. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so there's this one party. So she happens to be dating like the last Russian Grand Duke in the 20s. <laughs> and they're like, oh, are you bringing your boy or your girlfriend to him a lot? And she she does get invited to this party, and everyone's like, oh, all right, well, she's going to be here. We're going to get to interact with the great Coco Chanel, you know, like mm-hmm. kind of turning their, up no, their noses up a lot. And um, everybody is like, oh, she's going to be here. And she full-on snubs the party and does not go. Yes. <laughs> wow. Like, My drop, people. My drop. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, like, so now... Everything that they were going to say or that they could have said about her mistakes, they can't say because she's not there. Mm -hmm. All they can talk about is how awesome she is as a person, as a designer, about her clothes, her artistry. What what a what a flex. Like oh gosh, that you're yes. so cool that you don't even have to go to the party to make an impact. Like and that mm-hmm. going to the party would have made the wrong impact. Mm-hmm. And knowing that about yourself, I think that's really cool of Coco Chanel. But also like she had her own moment to turn her nose up at all of these people and she did it in an in a very simple but impactful way. Yes. Which I think is also very interesting. She mm-hmm. she does that a lot. Yeah. I find this so interesting as we were talking about this um, and this like perception of I love the fashion but I don't mm-hmm. want to see the face that created them. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it just remind you of like early French fashion? Like you, yeah. you talk about like the seamstresses and and all of the mm-hmm. real artisans 
mm-hmm. that produced acres and acres and acres of, of, the cloth, uh, of and cloth and fashion for these high aristocratic families. Yeah. And you never saw those faces. They were oh, no. They were not... Um, in the right class you did not you yeah. saw them in their shop and that was their place so I think mm-hmm. it's so interesting that it transcends time this like <laughs> French <laughs> ideal um, well but and even at that time like so Georgiana Spencer we haven't talked about her yet but she was a fashionista from the 1700s and she actually had quite a quite a lot to do with the styling of herself so she in her in her own way was her own personal designer and it really was just other people that would sew her clothes for her. Like, they would bring what oh, they so had, and they had... She had like, design ready, and they just kind of put the pieces together. Yeah. But she like, didn't know how to draw her designs either. She didn't know how to draw her designs. She didn't know, but she could tell you, I like this fabric, and I like this silhouette, and I like this is what you've done. And she, like, literally, she would create her own outfit mm-hmm. based on what she saw from the from the... Taylor, I guess, yeah. basically, but they weren't they weren't designers. Like Coco Chanel is the first person that we actually have who is fashion Identified. history people. Please don't kill me for this, but she's like the main. She's one of the first people who actually comes out and is a designer, mm-hmm. and you want to wear Chanel's clothes, not not imitate Georgiana Spencer kind of situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like because it's it's somebody else who's telling you what you want. Like, it, it's so marketing artisan, in a completely different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I was gonna say that it's the artisan, not the model. Yeah. Yes, um, exactly. That has the vision mm-hmm. and, and the story. Yeah. Very different. Mm-hmm. Completely the different. twist. Yeah, yes. so this is something else that Coco Chanel has done. Like, she changes everything about, like, because initially everything is, like, all about structure and corsets and all of that. And yes, she does still keep the st- similar structures mm-hmm. and she keeps the same like kind of fit to the clothes, but she like you lose a lot of that during the Roaring 20s. Like the mm-hmm. Roaring 20s are one of the last times that we really wear um corsets. And so the 1930s, we have more of like the brassiere and the um other form-fitting underwear that y- women wear. Like it, it it's a complete sorry I don't know how to say that any better. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a complete change in um, in female Structure. apparel and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like we we just lose a lot of those structures that you would have mm-hmm. seen normally. Yeah, um, which I think is really interesting too. I well, it's interesting. Oh, oh sorry, it's just interesting because she was just in skinny, small, petite, mm-hmm. very tiny person, and yeah. she tailored fashion to her style mm-hmm. and so you've got all of the rich women who are a little more busty a little bit larger a little more curvy who couldn't fit that style without looking mm-hmm. frumpy and so they ended up losing weight on purpose so that they could fit the Chanel standard yeah. and I think that's just um, just the way that she set it up that this is who I am whether you want to be this or not if you want to be mm-hmm. fashionable though yeah you're going to lose weight you're going to be skinny you're going to look good mm-hmm. and so like the way that she used fashion to change the view of how people first well, saw and the themselves. reason she was skinny is because of poverty and malnutrition mm-hmm. yeah yep. i think that's also important when we look very at similar to like i think it yeah. is very interesting um this change and mm-hmm. i like that she honored herself but i also kind of hate like that women that had the ability to eat food on a regular basis <laughs> deliberately lost weight just because of what, how they looked yeah they, because they wanted to fit a certain image mm-hmm. like i guess you know we sacrifice for the things we want but i also <laughs> think sometimes especially in the modern interpretation of that like you know there are better mm-hmm. ways guys there are definitely at. better ways i yeah. just think yeah. it's it's powerful the impact that she had on fashion at that time because oh, it wasn't just the clothing it was what you did no again the, the lifestyle like, it's not mm-hmm. just about the clo- the cloth that you happened to purchase yes. oh yeah the design the thought process the vision and then mm-hmm. how do i look good in that style and how do i own mm-hmm. that and what am i representing yes yeah. what i love that when we were talking like that she didn't know how to sketch and stuff like that mm-hmm. i think so often and i went to design school so i saw so many different people and i hear like i have mm-hmm. so many friends that have amazing insight um and just like even just being able to look at a, even fashion and be yeah. like um and they usually they call themselves like a, they, they appreciate art mm-hmm. or i'm not creative um i can't draw i can't do this i, I could never like actually put a b c t together and make it mm-hmm. a fashion piece or something like that so they kind of like undermine 
their own uh, talent. Mm-hmm. Whereas I love that she knew what could look together well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Spencer, right? Oh, yeah, Georgiana. Georgiana. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really pivotal. Like, don't like don't undermine yourself mm-hmm. with that kind of thought process like own yeah. like hey I see these patterns and I think this can work good together even if you don't have like the artistry and the education behind it mm-hmm. still own your idea yes yeah. you know you can oh, yeah. always acquire other skill set but um, Tammy is a huge fan of always saying like never speak negatively because your body and your psyche and everything mm-hmm. emotionally you you feel that and then mm-hmm. you have literally put yourself down. Mm-hmm. Um, so like don't do that. Like yeah. if you can appreciate something, it's more than that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, no, for reals. Um, okay, so we're gonna talk about Coco's time in the war. I'm just gonna briefly cover it real quick so that mm-hmm. you guys kind of know what's going on. Um, so Coco Chanel is very much wanted <laughs> by everybody, mm-hmm. and um, she happens like France happens to get occupied by the Germans. Um, personally, is she definitely a collaborator, and does she definitely date some of the German officers, the Nazis that are there in France? Yes, she does. Um, her part in the war. We're going to talk about it later. Um, <laughs> but it is it is important enough to say that um, she did participate. Um, and because of one particular hijink... Can I just tell that story? I don't... Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So she she's very much a Nazi sympathizer. And at one point during the war, it's kind of... We're getting close to the end, like maybe 1944, 1943. I don't remember the exact date. But she... Um, She's been with one of the German officers, and he decides, you know what, we, we need to end the war peacefully at this point. Like, we just need to cut our losses and get out. And she's like, I agree. Like, I'm so done with this war. Like, you guys are, you guys are great, but it, it needs to end. And so he convinces her. He's like, you've got contacts in Britain, which she does, and you've got people that can arrange a meeting between Churchill and Himmler in mm-hmm. Spain. How about you go ahead and do that? And she's like, all right, I'll do it. So she... I mean, what confidence? Guys, I'm sorry, but like, what confidence to be like, yeah, I'm a prominent person in society, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a big deal, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and I'm a sympathizer, and this needs to happen, uh, but I'm like a, I'm a fashion icon and a yeah. designer. But yeah, you're right. I know these people. Let's put them together. Let's put yeah. them together. She just owned it. I just, just don't. The co- yeah. I mean, this is beyond confidence. This yeah. is like I just don't even know what this woman was thinking. But I mean, bravo. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. She cracks me up so much. Like the confidence to not go to the party, but also the confidence to be like, I'm arranged the secret meeting party. Mm-hmm. Like, and she's not like overly political. Yes, is this yeah. like her the ideals that she's you know joined herself to mm-hmm. but it's not like she's a political figure guys no no she's, she's really not hosting not. rally she's not a leader in, socially she's a yeah. designer she definitely mm-hmm. she definitely has her ideas she has her impact and her fashion very much is a is a tool statement. that is used by those things but yeah. you know she doesn't have the power that power really mm-hmm. on her own so it's just very yeah. interesting she's just like yeah i own it those are my yeah. connections it's fine let's uh-huh. do this so she gets her one of her friends slash rivals. She's another designer in Italy. I cannot remember her name. I know I have it written down somewhere, but I can't look it up right now. Um, but so she gets this other designer who's from Italy. And naturally, and if you guys didn't know this, Italy and France are major rivals. <laughs> and like Milan and Paris, like they, they kind of compete. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she goes through and she gets her rival buddy and is like, hey, we're going to go arrange a meeting for Churchill and Himmler down in Spain. It's going to be super important. Are you with me? And her buddy's like, all right, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) So they both go down to Spain, and they start trying to arrange this. Um, (laughs) I don't know how Coco escapes, but her friend gets picked up as a spy, (laughs) and she's put in jail for the next eight years. Coco runs away to Switzerland before she can get picked up and arrested as a spy in Spain because 
Okay, Spain is kind of an interesting political situation going on here because they're neutral, but this is where all of the spying and all the information gathering is done in Europe. So you've got the Americans there, you've got the Germans there, you've got the Italians there. Like, everybody is in Spain spying on each other <laughs> while trying not to get caught spying on anyone else <laughs> by the Spanish because the Spanish will kick you out of their country or worse, arrest you for spying and keep you in a prison for eight years like they did to Coco Chanel's friend slash rival who they never talked to each other again. <laughs> Imagine. Which you call, I mean, I'm just telling you guys, I've told you, there's a line, if you get me arrested, I'm out. <laughs> exactly, right? That is I'm the good. only line. That's it. There's a lot we can do, but if I get arrested, I'm out. <laughs> exactly. And even Coco, she has to go to Switzerland for the next eight years while everything calms down because because of this act she is very much seen as a Nazi sympathizer and a spy and all these things, mm -hmm. right? So where she didn't have any political status before this act, she does now. She mm -hmm. was just a like a public figure. Now she's it, it appears that she has taken sides. It doesn't matter that the Which meeting was... so wins. funny because, like, from this account, like, she was just trying to, like, set up a meeting for peace. So, yeah. actually, there's, like, an irony here that she was yeah. even identified well, uh, I think so it was later mm -hmm. revealed that the um, meeting was not so innocent. Like, there was yeah. definitely going to be an assassination attempt on Churchill by the Germans, and that, oh, what a... What a downwind that would have been. <laughs> things would have <laughs> things would have gone down. We would not without uh, this world would not be what it is today. <laughs> the United States may not even have been in place now, right? If uh, Churchill had gone down, yeah, it yeah. would not. Yeah. It would it like, would have been really bad. It, Hitler was already in South America, guys. It was yeah. <laughs> like guy, it was very bad. Yes, yes. But so, so they almost she almost was made a scapegoat. Oh yeah, like let's just use oh, yeah. her naivety yes. and let's send her. And then if he happens to show up, guys, we take him out. Yep, exactly. Woo, that's why you gotta be careful, guys. But so why don't we think of Chanel as a Nazi sympathizer? Well, because she favorite. she continues to run her business from Switzerland, right? And everything is still in place. So when the Americans roll into Paris, number one, they're in freaking Paris. Number two, what do they know about Paris? Chanel. Mm -hmm. And what has Chanel left outside her shop door for the American soldiers? A cute little sign that reads, Free Chanel number no. five for American servicemen. <laughs> they're I not mean, stealing. Nope. They're not raiding the store. Nope. They're just picking up a bottle of perfume for free given by Chanel uh -huh. to all the Americans that uh -huh. have just wandered into the city. They could not be happier with her. Is she still on trial for war crimes, and can she not come home? Absolutely, she cannot come home for eight years. But her image but her was image, not destroyed. Yeah. No, especially not to the Americans. In mm -hmm. France, though, so when she does come back, she tries to relaunch her career as a designer. Yeah. In the 1940s, 50s. And she, but she, a lot of the, out, and the French are actually initially, like, pretty excited, because they're like, Chanel's back. Like, at this mm -hmm. time, you've got Dior, who has, like, Christian Dior, who's um, gotten his rise to fame. And then there's another one, I think about this time, maybe Prada, like, that's Italy, but, like, mm -hmm. fashion houses are starting to pop up, so that, because at this point, it's more important the name that you're wearing, rather than, like, the clothes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, Chanel... Which is something from Adolf. Oh, yes. We're, we're going to talk about yeah. that. Um, but so Chanel returns, and she's like, I have clothes, too. And so she... But she makes very similar clothes to what she made before the war. Mm -hmm. And it does not go well, because in France, it reminds everybody of the German occupation miserable they are not mm -hmm. happy and visually they're and just like triggering emotionally yeah. all over the place right. <laughs> this is only eight years ago guys yeah. like, this was a hard time for everyone but in america oh chanel has launched a new thing do you remember what chanel did for us servicemen mm -hmm. she gave everybody chanel number five for free because we liberated her city so now in america chanel is synonymous with freedom and not just freedom American superiority in a lot of ways because we freed France. Like, we rescued Paris. We saved Chanel. Like, yeah. that's, that's kind of the image that Chanel takes on 
in America. And then it's a household name. Mm-hmm. Never mind that exactly. these servicemen probably gave Chanel, the first ball of Chanel number five to the mistress that they had in France. <laughs> right. But then they brought it home, and the wife just doesn't even know. And yeah. I was like, yes, thank you, honey. This exactly. is what you brought me back. You brought yourself home. Mm-hmm. You're a distinguished man. You have gained leadership experience mm-hmm. and, and brought me and Chanel you number five. French yep. riches. Yes. 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 Because she is enough of a brand that she's important. Yeah. So let's. Um, I think that gives us enough background kind of for Chanel. Mm-hmm. We kind of know what goes on later. She does. Um, her later life, for me personally, is not as important as how she built up her brand and why why Chanel is still like very much in the public consciousness and why the brand is still so big. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit more about some of the principles behind Chanelism and that's what uh, Rhonda K. Gerlich calls it in her book. Um, so she has a super interesting comparison between the rise of Chanelism mm-hmm. and the rise of Nazism. It's fascinating. Mm. that situation if that's okay yeah with you guys okay so we're going to talk about chanel in half a second um she takes a lot of her information from susan sontag um i i know the name i don't necessarily know her work i think she does a lot of research into nazi germany and the rise of um, hitler just because and i only get that because that's where a lot of her comments Mm -hmm. Um, in Rhonda K. Gerlich's book come up. But I would definitely check out Susan Sontag if you are interested in um, in Nazis (laughs) and the rise of fascism. More so so that. Um, I think she's probably a good person. Um, Okay, so we're going to talk about she, so Rhonda K. Gerlich talks about, I think I just did this introduction, but we're going to specifically talk about fashion and the Nazis' use of fashion to increase the desire to participate in the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. Like how fashion and the image trumped the ideology and the practice. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I'm going to just start right here. So fashion gave equal time to the beauty of, covered bo- the, of the covered body as well, to fashion. Keenly aware of the power, the potent power of dress, fascists created famously beautiful uniforms, especially for the officers, which garnered acclaim beyond Italy and Germany. Even Americans found beauty in their enemies' uniforms, guys. I'm just saying. They're still really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You can say that and not be a Nazi. Okay. Yes. Sleek and form-fitting, fascist uniforms of both Italy and Germany showed, great adva- showed to great advantage the hewn physiques beneath. Finishing touches provided by the high boots, the black leather trench coats, and an elaborate system of badges, armbands, and medals, all adorned with the ubiquitous swastika, made for a total look that bespoke military authority but also masculine beauty. Such attention to dress and accessories might seem to court charges of effeminacy, but the constant underlying threat of violence and destruction offset any potentially emasculating effect. There is a general fantasy about uniforms, wrote Sontag, Susan Sontag. They suggest community, order, identity through ranks, badges, medals, things which declare who the wearer is and what he has done. His worth is recognized, um, and his competence, legal, legitimate authority, and legitimate exercise of violence. Sontag was right. 
Mere buttons and badges would have meant nothing without the tremendous power that clearly lay just beneath the glittering surfaces. But uniforms define more than their individual wearers. They also sculpt the collective body, unifying a group into a single whole, a sports team, an army, a nation. Though this is true of all uniforms, fascist uniforms were especially powerful, imbued as they were with the aura of the myth that compelling fascist narrative of a superior race united under the mystical swastika. This underlying myth added an ineffable allure to the uniform for those who watched and admired the soldiers, but also for those soldiers themselves. Um, Okay, so that kind of gives you a little bit of an overlook of how generally people saw the German uniform. It was really, like, it very much tailored, like, the... Um, the already athletic, okay, so there, there's this whole push towards Greek um, perfection during the Nazi regime, and especially like Greek perfection, Greek beauty, and um, just like being beautiful, beautifully fit, mm-hmm. both for men and for women. And then you put clothes on, on a guy. I saw this one little meme the other day. It was like, he was kind of flexing a lot. And he's like, I, my, the person who makes my suits is the same person who makes suits for, for King Charles. Mm. The difference is mine look more expensive and better on me because I'm, I'm, I keep myself in physical shape. Mm. And then he does a side-by-side comparison, and yes, it is absolutely true. He looks a lot better because <laughs> he is in shape. Yeah. And you would never think that they're, they're made by the same person but they are. Um, the difference is like the um, the fitness underneath them, I yeah. guess. Um, so that's part of the alert. And then there's this other comment. So this is one person who specifically um, joined because of the uniform. Um, he says, let's see. So his, his decision, this is basically the summation of his decision to join the SS. So all young men who joined the party had to join one of its formations as well. The SS was already considered an elite organization. The black uniform of the Fuhrer's Special Guard was a dashing and elegant, and quite a few of my fellow students had joined. In the SS, one found the better type of people, and membership in it brought considerable prestige and social advantage. I cannot deny that at the age 23, such things as social prestige and, shall we say, the glamour of a smart uniform played a quite a large part in my choice. Mm. Um, yeah, so fashion is like a huge... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I just love this idea of the collective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also still being... So, I mean, I think later in the book, or, you know, just the visual of this... Mm-hmm of a group of soldiers marching mm-hmm. down the road together oh. or in formation and doing some, you know, practice drills and things like that. Mm-hmm. There's just a power in yeah. being so unified visually. Mm-hmm. Like, you're inspired. You feel their presence. You, I mean, there's just, like, so much there. But also when they talk about medals and the individual. So, mm-hmm. and I think that's where they, people are just drawn to this kind of order. It, it feels less chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but to still have an identity within something that is so controlled, I'm not sure that there's an allure that is better. Yeah. Because, I mean, yes, they are controlled. They are doing whatever um, Mm -hmm. the government is telling them to do. Um, Force, whatever. (laughs) They will be doing this. But you have given them personal worth and identity within that regime and within that mm-hmm. order. Exactly. That is powerful on a psychological level. Yeah. You can almost not break that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's almost indestructible. But I do love this idea of being able to, uh, we were been talking about creating a brand and like kind of, we asked you guys, you know, what, what three words even, like describe your style, like mm-hmm. how intentional are you being with your look and how you're presenting yourself to the world. And I think there is just something so powerful with having your accomplishments written out on your uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, my value is oh, ABCD. Yeah. I have achieved these things. Well, I, even, this is not hearsay. This yeah. is not me having an ego. I have achieved these things. And to be able to glance at a person and to know that and to know their mm-hmm. rank, mm-hmm. their standing in society, their power, mm-hmm. that's 
Like that's a that's a that's powerful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, and you have it all written on your sleeve. Like you don't even have when you so, don't have to say it. Like consider the interview. So tell me about yourself. Boom. You don't even have to say that because you walk up to people and they're like, that you don't even have to ask. Tell me mm-hmm. about yourself. You already see. Oh, you have this award. Dang, you're brave. You have this award. Oh my gosh, you did that. You have this award. Like. Mm-hmm. You can just well, look at it and see. I've yeah. seen, like, almost the opposite of this recently. So uh-huh. we all know that I love K-pop. Mm-hmm. But um, my favorite BTS member, Suga, he just went on tour, and he went on Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> and, like, and he did so many interviews. So so many people. And every single interview asked him, like, oh, he, he, he does a lot of work under a pseudonym. And so he's just like, so who is August D? And, like, describe this. But it's just, like, mm-hmm. there's just this underlying message of, you know who I am? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are you asking this question? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's almost oh, yeah. like we know who these people are. Mm-hmm. So why are we asking this question? But yeah. this yeah. uniform, it says it all. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, and you get, and the other thing with that is like you don't even necessarily like what makes you stand out now is your personal accomplishments because you mm-hmm. look like everybody else in the room. So now, even though there is a unity and you all have the same purpose, you all look alike. You're all also vying for the same attention and, uh, how you say, acknowledgement? Acknowledgement, mm-hmm. That's yeah. the word, yeah. The same acknowledgement from the people that are standing in front of you that mm-hmm. have these different ideas as well. But you're looking for that one specific person's approval mm-hmm. in order to gain more badges and more respect, Because yeah. I feel like, especially during this day and age, Um, if you didn't have social rank, Mm -hmm. you really were not treated well. Like, human rights was not, I mean, hello. (laughs) We just talked about Coco. (laughs) And they're literally, um, you know, wiping out an entire (laughs) race of people. Um, they, they disregard life. So Mm -hmm. to be in this day and age where life can literally be disregarded completely Mm -hmm. and abolished, like, um, to be able to say, I can join this regime and I can earn my own, and and I can earn honor, and I can earn respect. Mm-hmm. That's, exactly. I mean, you're motivating a people. I'm not sure there's much, and I think that's actually what I, because I like why well, I struggle with our generation where we live. Like especially the more I, I love history, and I've just like grown up with a lot of watching older mm-hmm. um, time periods and how they act and. Like, how they have a little bit more dignity, I think, than we do. Mm-hmm. And maybe just uh, self-respect and honor for their name and their heritage, that kind of thing. I feel like America is struggling to maintain this story. Especially when yeah. we are mm-hmm. such a mixing pot of culture in the mm-hmm. United States. So, like, what what are we, guys? Are yeah. We're free right now. Hopefully it lasts. Yeah. Yeah. But what else are we? And so, like, I've seen all of these things. So, when I look at this particular time frame, I mean, this is amazing. For yeah, yeah. any person to step in and say, I will support this regime, mm-hmm. and then I can have honor, glory, be part of yeah. something, have power, and have importance. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, and the wow. idea is completely seductive. Like, Susan Sontag even puts in there, like, it was sexy. Fascism was sexy. Like, mm-hmm. this is where you get... Like, especially for men, who doesn't want to, like, I I can't, I don't know, but I would guess, (laughs) personally. But, like, who doesn't want to be, like, that ultra cut, like, this this is the epitome of what women want in a man, is a man who is very shapely, he's physically fit, he looks good, and he wears a suit, and you can see his accomplishments, and he's done lots of great Mm -hmm. things, he's got trophies and awards pinned to his jacket, sweetheart, like... And even though maybe it was unintended, Coco Chanel did the same thing. We're seeing this in in fashion mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm. What you just described, that is yeah. still the ideal man. <laughs> yeah. Like in Hollywood, mm-hmm. it's not realistic for the everyday man. But yeah. it's the same thing with women. During yeah. that period of time, oh, lose weight and fit into these clothes that will have the perfect silhouette. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. Fashion industry is ridiculous. These women, you can see all their abs. Their, oh, sorry, not abs, because they don't usually, <laughs> that's usually not yeah. promoted. Uh, although I love a good strong woman. Um, but like ribs, like, yeah. like half starvation. Mm-hmm. That's a look right now. And it's huge mm-hmm. and it's been perpetuated through entire generations. Mm-hmm. So th- this yeah. is like a time period that is still very, very idolized um, in representation. Um, so I just, I find it crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I feel like too, there's a sense of pride 
Like wearing yeah. that uniform, yes, it's awesome, but you only usually wear these uniforms if you have pride in it and you have mm-hmm. pride in the idea of what you can do, what you can become. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit, You're going back to what you were saying here in America, that's a little bit of what we've lost. We have lost mm-hmm. the pride of what a uniform can bring. So even just looking at marching bands, like when I was in high school, we had a uniform. It was it, it was hot as all get out, but it was full wool. Who designed those? Like, but they were oh so, you could not breathe. to head, like, and, but you looked good. And there was pride in wearing that uniform. Like whenever I put that hat on, the I was like, oh, The biggest band in the world. Yes. That was like our claim to fame. Oh, yes. yes. Like, it, but there's, there's pride, there's ownership in that. And even looking now, like, just watching the 4th of July parade and seeing the the bands there, don't get me wrong, kudos for getting out there and for marching and playing, because that is already hard. But then you see them wearing, like, black shorts and, uh, like, an orange shirt, and that's it. But it's not even uniform, because they've got their backpacks on and a fanny pack, and somebody is spraying water, and there's a water bottle being drunk at the same time when they're supposed to be playing and I'm like there's just no pride in what yeah. you are no don't get me wrong like pride can be really really bad but taking the, the individual and yes. superseded uh-huh superseded the collective form because yeah. there's power sometimes there's always power in being individual but there's power sometimes in being a group yeah. And I think that's what Coco Chanel or and this whole idea is going is hitting home there's power in being fashionable and feeling that pride as a group together and I think that's also the allure of what Coco Chanel was at this time like I am part of the group of Chanel we all wear the same thing and we're individual but we are a collective group of people yeah there was one thing uh, I was gonna read the the little opinions on Coco is that what you wanted to go with I wanted to cover um that I keep losing um that just that because she was upper class, she wasn't really touched. Oh yeah, in that, that's what I'm okay, about cool. to read. Go yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've kind of talked about like Nazism and how they used fashion. Let's talk about Chanelism and why Nazism could not overcome it, which mm-hmm. I think is really interesting and really cool. So, all right, um, this is back from Rande Kigerlich again. So, fashion, of course, had no place in the virtuous woman's life. Nazi propaganda posters featured full-bosomed women, Aryan Madonnas, wearing the humblest clothes possible, a housewife's apron, the peasant's muslin dress, or, in the occasional nod to antiquity, a Grecian robe. The fascists may have lured male recruits with fashionable uniforms, but chic attire for women was morally suspect. Um, Reinhard Spitzi, who admitted joining the SS for the uniform, recalled that before his induction, part of the screening process included an interrogation of his wife about whether she likes too much dresses or perfumes, or if she wants to be the perfect German housewife, (laughs) (laughs) which is really funny. Um... I'm going to read this last one, and then this will make more sense. Okay. So, but the fascists could never entirely squelch women's modernity, nor did they wish to. Despite the rhetoric of a return to home and hearth, fascism was invested in progress and technology. The modern modern world required and already had a modernized female population. Italy's fascist dictatorship even celebrated that avatar of national progress, the Nuova Italiana, or the New Italian Woman. Coherent social and national identities for women could never emerge from the illogic and hypocrisy of totalitarianism. Fabulous, by the way. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so then in they talk a little bit about being in France and how uh, women it was very seen as pretty bad for young women to be reading Mary Claire, um, especially because she was seen as like it. It just she was a fashion magazine and like. They weren't supposed to be reading that. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Yeah, this wasn't supposed to be their focus. They're yeah. supposed to be worried about their own families and having exactly. children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to read this part. So if young women could be corrupted by Marie Claire, then Chanel was the devil incarnate, since no one's name graced the fashion pages more frequently than Coco's. Considered in the context of French interwar politics then, Chanel was a paradox. Her personal beliefs put her squarely in the camp of the pro-fascists, she was a staunch nationalist, an arch-conservative, and a, nas- a German sympathizer. She was a royalist, anti-union, anti-Semitic, anti-parliamentarian, and had no patience for women's rights movements. Yet Chanel was also never married, presumably childless, a professional woman who lived openly with her lovers. 
She virtuously, virtually embodied the sad caricature lamented in pronatalist and fascist propaganda. What's more, she had founded a cult of imitators, branding women throughout Europe with her black and white letter C's. Chanel was the patron saint, not to say one of the creators of the fascist's reviled femme modern. <laughs> Which I think is so funny. Like, um, first, that that they, they couldn't create an image for women. Like, there's another book I read, Code Girls, where they actually go through and they talk about how when women started joining the ranks of the military to help serve, they could not figure out what to put women in because there's just like, this is not an image that we necessarily have of women. It's more of like hearth and home. But Chanel creates something that is also independent and fashionable and you're still part of something and you have this strong identity for yourself while ironically you're still wearing double c's you are still wearing someone else's brand you are still wearing someone else's name and i i find that very interesting um the like chanelism and what she represented was too much to be overcome even by Nazi propaganda mm -hmm. and the push for um, the push for women to return to the home if that makes sense mm -hmm. like it was it was too strong well I think it was interesting when me and Anne were talking yesterday it's just that Coco was never a target either for yeah. this entire regime either because she was upper class at this point mm -hmm. she had already established herself so really, all those ideals did not, they were not meant to control women and men of a certain rank. Yeah. Like, and, and the fact that she was a supporter, she didn't get pulled into, no, you have go get married and have children. Mm -hmm. They didn't question her and manipulate her and force her into a role. It was fine yeah. because she was of a higher class. Yeah. So it, it's just really interesting to me, to me the where they would break their mm -hmm. ideal, idealization and what they propagated. Like... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's contradictory, guys. I'm I'm happy for Chanel. Yeah. Um, but you know, very different than what they actually proclaimed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me, some of the questions that Chanel kind of leaves behind for us personally is number one. Um, we we've talked about branding, but what logos are you putting on yourself? Like, cause um, the double C's for Chanel, the swastika for the Nazis, those are logos. And will you tell the story about um, Hitler's Black Guard? Oh, yeah. So even, okay, so Hitler's Guard, um, they had the classiest uniforms. Like, everybody wanted to be, you see this in Jojo Rabbit, the movie, mm -hmm. where he wants to be a part of Hitler's Guard because there's so many myths about them because they look so spectacular. But even Hitler on his cufflinks, he, um, of his of his guard he has his name signed in like silver thread mm. on each of their uniforms which gives him this extra aura of um aura of mystique and like celebrity like figure but also gives his his personal guard this extra layer of we are part of an elite group like mm. almost in a lot of ways she talks about it as like the the celebrity's signature, the celebrity's brand, but it's almost even like the artist's signature on his own painting. Uh -huh, mm -hmm. Like you guys are here, you're part of my thing. You are my work of art. Like there is very much an ownership beyond the swastika for yeah. his special mm -hmm. guard because they they have his name written on their arms. His full name, not just Hitler, Adolf Hitler. Like, that's what they have mm -hmm. as part of the uniforms. Yeah. I think it's just astounding. Yeah, I just yeah. love that. Thank you, Anne, because I yeah. just, I mean, and we've become, it's become so mainstream uh, for every small business, and even our podcast has that logo, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's become kind of expected, mm -hmm. but there really is a power that we see in, especially the patterns of this time with Adolf Hitler, with the swastika, and with Coco Chanel. These mm -hmm. are recognizable symbols of power, in an instance, you know who they are and what they represent. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, again, if how can we strengthen what we're projecting so that it's this kind of recognition? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, 
because like I said, it's because unfortunately I think it has become a little too mainstream. Like I think yeah. even visually, I love visual arts. Like <laughs> I can't tell you how much fun I have creating yeah. even our Instagram posts <laughs> and stuff like that and creating brand and, um, uh, but, um, and graphic arts, but like how strong is it now? And yeah. these three brands they're just they're still so 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 powerful yeah yeah so yeah and how do can you we, how can we own that too i was just gonna say do you own your own brand or yeah. do you yeah. just wear it and go with yeah. it because or is that's it somebody the else's between, logo yeah because that's the difference between a typical marching band and the nazis right yeah that that ownership and it seems like group. this really was mm-hmm. the birth of that like mm-hmm. you wear a label yeah. yeah, and we were talking. I mean, we've we've talked about this, and this is a, it's a very well known concept. But the truly wealthy in today's world, Don't you do brands. not see mm-hmm. a logo on their clothes. Yeah, their shirt is the top of the chain. Like mm-hmm. you cannot get a better quality and a better design, especially depending on your own personal look. Mm-hmm. But they are not going to have someone else's name on their body. Yeah, yeah. unless they're endorsed. Yes, <laughs> they're endorsed. And let exactly. me tell you, they're paid well. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like yeah what are you wearing and what is it saying about you mm-hmm. as as the owner mm-hmm. and not somebody else yeah exactly and next week sorry mm-hmm. we're going to discuss this a little bit more but next week we're going to talk about a woman who uses that same idea what are you wearing what do you look like those first impressions that people have of her she uses it against them mm-hmm. to save france so Tune in next week. We'll have more information on our Insta, and we'll see you next time. See you in Tahiti. Au revoir. Thank you for joining us today. Make sure to check out our Instagram, at Podcast and give us a follow so you never miss our updates. For more information about the women we have discussed or that we will discuss, you can visit our website at www.thequeensilkpodcast.com. If you have any questions, comments, queries, dilemmas, recommendations, memes, or you want to share your story with us, you can email us at thequeensilkpodcast at gmail.com. We will respond to all messages as soon as possible. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.